You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, October 26th, 2016, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santa Maria. Howdy. Jay Novella. And Evan Bernstein. Evening, folks. Hello. So it's getting damn cold in Connecticut. <sighs> Ooh, really? Yeah. I'm sweating. I heard predictions of snow a few days before Halloween, and I'm going to cry. Oh, gosh. Snow? This is it can't horrible. snow before Halloween. It's not allowed. It has. Now, yeah. Remember, they 11. canceled Halloween a few years ago. I know. You can't cancel Halloween. Snow. They did. They well, did. They, they canceled did. Halloween. There was no power. Like That's like an apocalypse. My daughters were totally fine with it. They were like, yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> I was like, I, when we were that age, guys, if, if for some reason we had to miss Halloween, we would have freaked. The buildup oh, yeah. is big for Halloween. Without it, I would have literally exploded in the living room. What do you mean we would have freaked? <laughs> I'm freaking right now. No, no chocolate peanut butter cups for you, Bob. Sorry. Oh, believe me. I've been Aww. eating plenty of those. <laughs> oh, my God. Bob, you always have to keep this in mind. Halloween is on the inside. Okay. <laughs> Halloween is a state of mind. Halloween yeah. has a sixty-day runoff. That's if you think such about it. bullshit. You, they start. They yeah. start pushing the stuff on you uh, right after Labor Day. Basically, Labor Day is the unofficial start of, Hall- of Halloween. That's about sixty days or so that you have of that buildup. And when you're a kid, sixty days is might as well be three hundred sixty days. I love non-religious holidays. Oh yeah, they're great. But like two weeks into that, they start pushing Christmas. I'm already seeing Christmas commercials. You guys, oh, I, I, the displays yeah. in the stores, please. What would Christmas coming in, old? Kara, I figured out that I'm yeah. old. You want to know how? Like, it hit me. I swear to God, it hit me last year. It took you so long. Last year, two <laughs> days after Christmas, I'm in Kmart, and I'm buying the sale, and I'm like, I'm I'm those people. I'm those people that buy stuff after the holiday. Like, I'm stocking up on lights and everything. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> Jay, was, Jay there's, nothing, there's nothing to be ashamed of. I, I hit the Halloween stores November 1st. You... Make a killing, 50% off, 60% off. It's wonderful. Figuratively. And for me, half that crap I wear year-round anyway. <laughs> like, Halloween is my Halloween favorite stuff. holiday because you can always find, like, socks with skulls and crossbones on yeah. them. And, like, spooky things that are sort of the way I dress. Yeah. <laughs> You're awesome. So edgy. <laughs> so edgy. Yes. <laughs> Mormon edgy. Cutting. Mormon Which, edgy. by the way, yeah. growing goth. up Mormon... We loved Halloween, but they were like really safe about it. We used to do this thing where we would go to the church and they would have a quote haunted house inside the church. And in the parking lot of the church, all of the cars would uh, pull in head in and we would have trunk or treat. Did you guys ever do a what? trunk or treat no. when you what were the hell is Oh that? my gosh, it sounds like a horror. Okay, we, go ahead. Yeah, so you would that. go from car to car, but these people went all out decorating their trunks. So it was kind of amazing. Like there were smoke machine, you know, fog machines and disco lights and Wait. all sorts of crazy stuff just oh, that in could their be fun. With typical yeah, scary cool. Halloween regalia or other things? Yeah, yeah. Mormons aren't like um, Jehovah's Witnesses in that way. They're all about the Thank skeletons Christ. and pumpkins. Care, we did that at my daughter's school years ago. Yeah, they, they, cool. had a, they had a contest. We decorated their cars. And of course, I won the contest, but uh, you know that's no surprise. Well, especially for neighborhoods where people don't feel fully safe, letting their kids out. You know, Halloween's kind of lame now. Do you guys notice how few people come to the door anymore yeah. when they go trick or treating? Well, there's so, there's depends. neighborhoods that that get the, you know they get all the uh, traffic. We have an active neighborhood. Yeah. I'm hoping that mine is too. This is my first year in this new house, and it's a very family oriented neighborhood. I my neighbors have kids, so I think I told you guys last week I went to Costco and got the full size candy bars. Oh, I want to be you're going to spoil those kids. 
No, yeah. nobody's going to egg your house. Kara, I read recently that in the UK, like 50% of households turn off their lights and pretend not to be home. Oh, they so really sad. hate the uh, Halloween. This is not the way it is over here. What is wrong with them? them? All right, important Halloween fact for skeptics. <laughs> okay. The, the whole thing about kids being poisoned or drugged or, you know, razor blades and the candy, it's all BS. That's urban legend levels. Yeah, it's urban like legend. the only time people get sick from candy is when it's like not sterile, like it's improperly stored or something. There have been like very, very few actually documented cases of people getting sick. Oh, no. It's when they've, they're poisoned by their own families. That's what it is. So – Yeah. When you, when was, you read oh, the debunking yeah, yeah. literature, can, you see I that, the, see that. The, the handful of times when people actually were sickened by Halloween candy, it was because you know their horrible parents with Munchausen's by proxy or something oh actually gosh. poisoned their own children. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So, That's yay, Halloween. Horror. That's a horror unto itself. Now, did you, are the stories of people going to the hospital to have their candy x-rayed, did people actually do that? I don't know anybody who did that. <laughs> That's so no. stupid. Okay. <laughs> I don't think the hospital would be willing to. They'd be no, like, they would tell me? them to screw off. They would never do that. They'd, they'd give you a referral to psychiatry. <laughs> yeah, <that's awesome. laughs> Go to the psych ward. Let's get on with the show. Uh, we're going to start with a special Forgotten Superheroes of Science. This is actually a Forgotten Superhero of Skepticism. This is a good friend of ours and fellow uh, colleague, skeptical activist David Young, uh, who founded the Hong Kong Skeptics. And Jay, you're going to tell us a lot more about him. Well, the hard part of this one is that David was diagnosed with ALS this year. And, you know, ALS, uh, for most people that get it, you have about two years. And, um, you know, David's about halfway through that. And it's been very difficult for him and difficult for, for his friends and family that are around him and seeing it happen. David, ha- however, has been unbelievable with, uh, you know, just the way he's been dealing with it. He definitely um, has an attitude where you're, you're surprised at how, how good he's managing and how positive he can be. David sent me a recording over the summer. He was, you know, g- giving me an update and he was going to visit his family. And he was just talking about how beautiful the sky was and how beautiful the park was that he was sitting in. And he was really appreciating the area around him. And uh, I got to tell you, it's, a, it's difficult, but also amazing to, uh, to hear a friend of yours, you know, just be positive and, and be really appreciating their surroundings at a time when you'd think, you know, you couldn't get out of your own way. But more importantly, David is, is the perfect example of what a single, a single person or a single skeptical activist can do. He found himself in China. Uh, I think his wife's job brought him there. You know, it's one of the most difficult places for a skeptic to be and to get work done. But David's become the center of scientific skepticism and activism in Hong Kong and southern China. He, uh, expanded the skeptics in the pub in Hong Kong from a few people to an, you know, legal, Entity that invites speakers to come in and educate anyone interested in, in attending. He's um, been pivotal in getting skeptics in the pub Dongwan up and running, and he's a regular scheduled radio show. He has a regularly scheduled radio show in Hong Kong about skepticism. He arranges talks with high schools and universities. He invites working scientists to come and talk at their skeptics in the pub, and David actually helped inspire many people to get involved in the movement in China. And a lot of these people are writing blogs and, you know, the activism has been spreading all from, you know, that morning he got up and decided to take action. Yeah, David's one of these people who doesn't really promote himself as a brand. He's not a self-promoter. He just works his ass off to promote skepticism because he really cares about it. 
you know, which is why he's like a perfect forgotten superhero because he mm-hmm. doesn't really promote himself, but he is, you know, working really hard to promote other people and other things and just anything to raise the profile of the skeptical movement and to get people interested in it and thinking critically. It's really fantastic. Yeah, you may not have heard of him before this broadcast, but you've probably been touched by the work that he does. What I like to think is that his work is always going to be there woven into the changes that are happening now in China, and he's still inspiring people. So if you would like to email David through us to send him a message of any kind, send us an email at info at org with the subject line David Young, and I will forward that to David and, and probably talk to him about the emails that you, you send to us. David, thank you so much for inspiring me as a, skepti- a skeptical activist. You know, I've been doing this a long time, and you you actually got me enthusiastic about my own future as an activist. And I think the world of you, I I think you've done a tremendous amount. And I still think you're inspiring people today. Hear, hear to David. Hear, hear. Thank you, David. All right, guys, let's move on to our news items. We're going to start with one about 234 possible alien signals. Whoa. Did you guys hear this? <laughs> <laughs> I did. I read your uh, your blog post. Right? And I've read the comments of your blog post as well, which are very interesting. <laughs> Always interesting. Uh, okay, so this is what's going on. Astronomers, two Canadian astronomers published a paper where they say that they think that an intelligent civilization might use pulsed lasers to advertise their presence. And they hypothesized about what the characteristics, the light curve characteristics of those pulsed lasers would look like. Then they got access to a uh, telescope of data, and they were able to analyze data from 2.5 million stars. Out of those 2.5 million, they found 234, which demonstrated light characteristics that they predicted uh, you would see for this pulsed laser beacon that a technological civilization might send. Mm-hmm. How so big was the sample size? 2.5 million. Oh, boy, that's big. That's big. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This raises a lot of interesting questions. You know, obviously, this is one piece of extremely preliminary data. But it's fun to think about, all right, what happens when – Astronomers see something that they can't explain and they think might have the characteristic of an alien intelligence. So they, these, I know what they do. They claim it's aliens and their their work is done. And done. What, right. what else <laughs> do you have done. to do? My work is done here. Moving on. Now, those are ghost hunters. <laughs> oh, that's what they do. Oh, that's they, right. I forgot. Yeah, they, they find a putative <laughs> anomaly. It's not even an anomaly. They just find something unusual. They declare it an anomaly and say it's ghosts. That's like, that's ghost cold. Feel that cold over there? Yeah, it's cold. It's not a draft. It's not air conditioning. It's cold. Well, yeah. (laughs) Case closed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So these are the astronomers are E.F. Bora and E. Trottier. Uh, I might have mispronounced those names. Trottier. And Trottier, who knows? So they wrote in their paper, signals having the same period were found in only 234 stars overwhelmingly in the F2 to K1 spectral range. The signals cannot be caused by instrumental or data analysis effects because they are present in only a very small fraction of stars within a narrow spectral range and because signal-to-noise ratio considerations predict that the signal should mostly be detected in the brightest objects while this is not the case. So they're basically 
arguing for why this is not an artifact, at least not one of the most common known artifacts, which is always a good first step, right? You see a possible signal. Mm-hmm. Question number one is, is this real, right? Is it is the data real or is this some kind of artifact? If it is real, then step two is, what are the possible natural causes of it? And that's kind of the fun part, right? And that's where astronomers are probably going to discover something new and interesting. In this case, the the thing that astronomers are saying is, well, you know, if there are certain kinds of molecules in these stars, they would be emitting light with these characteristics. Now, we don't know that these molecules exist in these 234 stars, but they could. Since, you know, this is 234 out of 2.5 million, this could certainly be a, a rare or unusual type of star or something rare and unusual going on. It's pretty thin evidence that it's aliens. And even, you know, the oh, astronomers gosh. are not claiming that. They're just saying, you know, hey, we looked, went looking for these and we found them, you know. Yeah, but the headlines will steer you in a well, different direction. Sort of. Yeah, I mean, the headlines are all over the place. I mean, there's a couple of good skeptical writers out there, like Greg Fish wrote, an, wrote a good article saying that this is probably not aliens. Don't get all too excited. Uh, but of course, a lot of other headline writers are saying, scientists are claiming they've probably found aliens, which is what they're not saying that. The ultimate sort of interesting question here is, how would we know if we did detect aliens? Then what? What would that look like? Of course, we don't know because we have no idea what what we would find. But it's not unlikely that if we did encounter evidence of aliens, whether it was a deliberate attempt at contacting us or just advertising their presence, or just we find an artifact that can only be explained through super advanced alien technology, what would that process be like? And what's interesting is that it would start like this, kind of like this, or like, remember, we, we we talked about the, the sun that is dipping its light curve, mm-hmm. like yes. 20%. And, was Tabby Star? Yeah, Tabby Star. Uh, it's the same kind of thing. You, know, you have an anomaly. Astronomers have no idea what's causing it. And, of course, everyone's saying maybe it's alien megastructures, but we have no idea. In the past, these things have all turned out to be natural phenomena, you know. So that's probably still going to be the case. But at some point, you know, we may find something that's unusual, and then we'll rule out artifacts, and then – you know, the natural causes will be eliminated one by one. And then, you know, over months, maybe even years, we may slowly build a case for, well, yeah, this really is the only explanation we have at this point. And then we may have to make hypotheses. Oh, okay, if that's the case, then we would expect to find this and then look for it. And you know what I mean? So it's interesting. It would be, it would be a slow burn. It wouldn't necessarily be like, as I think movies typically portray it like you know press eureka yeah they had only two hours basically to get the whole story in so that's why it happens that way yeah like you turn on your tv and it's like we've discovered aliens you know it's probably (laughs) not going to happen that way but independence day (laughs) well yeah (laughs) you need a ship landing and aliens showing up to be very confident that that's what you have that's right carl sagan famously or said that you know if, if aliens are visiting the earth it's not a matter of you know is it possible you will know it i mean it will be like <laughs> yeah, no doubt yeah, yeah. about it but even like uh the, the movies also portray it as if the astronomers like they see the ship approaching our system and they're discussing it at the highest levels and only when they're sure it's an alien ship do they make the announcement to the world you know out of the blue but in reality that's that's never the way these things happen you know, when new interesting things are found, they're all over the internet. 
You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Astronomers mm-hmm. are talking to each other. They're posting it online. It, it gets out there. You know what I mean? That information is not controlled until they know exactly what's going on mm. because the government doesn't control the scientists around the world. Not yet. And, and Seth, you know, he's on our show. He's pointed this out that if you think you see something, whether it's an interesting star or a signal or a ship approaching or whatever, the first thing you do is call your colleague in Australia and say, hey, I need you to point your radio telescope or your whatever here and tell me what you find. Double check my settings. Yeah. Yeah. So the first thing that happens is you you break silence and you and you tell somebody right. else halfway around the world. But keep it a secret. You know, Don't tell anyone. Yeah. There's like there's no way the the very process of discovery, the very process of discovery, makes it impossible to keep this under wraps, to keep it secret. And so there's always going to be this long wind up. I think before. We ever are like, you know, we ease into this conclusion that, yeah, you know, it's probably, maybe it is aliens. And Holy then it's crap. Yeah. It's going to be, we're going to, it's going to be interesting when we start to creep up to that conclusion, you know, and I would love, to, of course, to experience that. It's fascinating. You yeah. Know, it's like, like a critical mass. You're waiting for a critical mass to happen. Yeah. Not one thing. It's, yeah, it's yeah. That, that critical mass. And I think, I think the skeptical community will be, Right there, you know, appropriately oh, cautious sure. at first. Oh, yeah. It's slowly building steam. And then, yeah, I don't, you know, it's, I think, well, initially, of course, say, yeah, these things, chances are, like, with, if Tabby Star turns out to be Dyson Swarm, our current skepticism is fully appropriate. We're not saying it's not that or that it's impossible. We're just saying it's not not likely, likely and it, these things usually turn out to be right. n- not alien you know, exactly. phenomena. But hey, if the evidence starts to move in that direction, we're watching it. Yep. You know, it's like now in my mind, there's these two things hold, hanging out there that there's probably more, but these are the two that we're aware of, right? That uh, where aliens have not been ruled out. They're not likely, but they haven't been ruled out. And yeah, we'll keep that little question mark next to them and see. I'll be paying attention to any updates and I won't be sure. shocked when astronomers discover that it's an artifact or it's something else. Do the creationists already have their argument built in for when we when that announcement is made? <laughs> yeah, that'll be also very interesting to see that as the how are the religious communities around the world oh, gonna weird. react. Yeah, that's is it in God's image? We'll mm-hmm. see. <laughs> <laughs> or is it from Satan? No maybe you never ever know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kara, uh, I understand this. There's a lot of talk today about HIV and patient zero. What's going on there? Fascinating stuff. And today is the day that a lot of news broke around it. We're, of course, recording this on um, Wednesday, October 26th, and the internet is blowing up. Have you guys heard of patient zero? Has everybody heard the story surrounding patient zero? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah so, I'm um, familiar. His name is uh, Gaetan Dugas, and he was a French-Canadian flight attendant. He admitted to having sex with around 250 men per year starting in 1974 when he was hired by Air Canada. So he was actually able to travel across the... um, the continent. Wait, this happened on the airplane? No. no. <laughs> right, Mile high club. You never know. Port right? to port, as they say. Yeah. Um, but of course, there's been this myth surrounding him that he is patient zero. I mean, his name is in many ways synonymous with patient zero. And when we think of the term patient zero, of course, we think of the person who brought HIV to North America and spread it around. Yeah, what I didn't realize, Kara, is that the term patient zero 
was invented to refer to him. To refer to him, exactly. The term Whoa. patient zero. So in all these science really fiction exist. novels and things that I read when yeah, they talk about patient post zero. Yeah, it all comes post-1974. Okay, mm-hmm. I thought that started in a book or something. Well, it did. A book about him. About him. Before that, I mean, the, the technical term is the index case. Yes. And the index case is not necessarily the the typhoid Mary. It's not the person who necessarily started it or spread it. It's just the first recognized case that brought to scientific attention that an outbreak or an epidemic or whatever is happening. Totally. So here's the thing. This really, in many ways, is a story of kind of rewriting history. So let's talk about the reasons first why Gaetan Dugas really um, held that moniker, that myth of patient zero for so long and, and really in our eyes was viewed as that. One, he actually remembered many of the names of his partners. A lot of men around that time, men who were having sex with men, who then came down with what they were calling the gay cancer, as it was first known, which refers specifically to um, kind of a cluster of symptoms like pneumonia, Kaposi sarcoma, which is a type of cancer that that a lot of AIDS patients were getting long before they knew what AIDS was. They were calling it the gay cancer. When they were able to find men who had this quote-unquote gay cancer, many of them said that they had had sex with a similar number of men, but they couldn't remember the name, so it was hard to trace. He was really helpful to epidemiologists and healthcare workers at the time um, because they said, okay, you have this interesting disease. We want to see if it's sexually transmitted. We want to know who you've been with. And they started to kind of um, index and cross-list all of these cases. At the time, also, they thought the incubation period was as little as 10 months. So it did seem really likely that Gaetan Dugas um, could have contributed to the rampant spread of AIDS because if most people caught it and then died within 10 months, his activity traveling around the country would have had a really strong effect. And here's the last but most bizarre part, the part that Steve was referring to, is this patient zero moniker itself. In early writings, these healthcare workers and epidemiologists, when they were documenting Gaetan's relationships, they used the distinction patient O, because O meant out of town, because they were looking at cases in New York oh. and San Francisco, and they were calling patients by number in order to maintain anonymity. New York 1, San Francisco 3, New York 12. Well, Gaetan was French-Canadian. He wasn't from New York or San Francisco. He had just been there many times as a flight attendant. So he was patient O for patient from out of town. Or outside L.A., I've read. Or outside of L.A., yeah, outside yeah, of the L.A. One of those, area. Yeah, outside, you know, mm-hmm. the, these two areas, yeah. It turns out that in 1987, now remember, uh, Gaetan started flying around with Air Canada in 1974. He was officially diagnosed in 1982 and died in 1984. So in 1987, a book was published about Gaetan called and the ba- and about the AIDS epidemic in general called and the band played on by a journalist named Randy Schiltz. Randy himself was a gay journalist who then later died of AIDS. But during the marketing around the book, instead of focusing on government inaction and the idea of um, 
kind of the stigma that was happening around this quote gay cancer or this quote gay plague as many were calling it they decided to really publicize the book focusing on Gaetan's story and it became in many ways larger than life in the book he is referred to as patient zero because it sounded cool and that's what it looked like in the notes he's vilified he's compared to typhoid mary and he's also described as intentionally spreading this quote gay cancer like refusing to wear condoms and knowingly spreading it around now in fact it's hard to know whether or not that did happen but many men at the time did refuse to wear condoms and i think it's important that we look at the historical context right homosexuality was still illegal in many places. It was only recently declassified as a mental illness. The sexual revolution was in full swing. So as soon as many of these men were able to kind of start self-identifying and, and you know, having this kind of gay pride movement, all of a sudden from the outside again, it was put on a condom, don't have sex, it's dangerous, it's scary. So a lot of people really pushed back against that. And I think that um, he caught some flack as being a named person for that. No. Yeah, Kara, also, I found a paper published in 2014, where they brought up another point, they were also reviewing this patient zero myth. And uh-huh. they said that at the time, the, the book really took it out of context because it had the retrospect of what we knew about AIDS in 1987. But yeah, the, that was five years later. Yeah, at, at the from- time, it wasn't even known that this was contagious. No, they didn't know anything about it. They yeah. didn't know if it was sexually transmitted. They didn't know anything. It was this weird thing where gay men were dying. And they had no idea why. This new study that came out today actually debunks this patient zero myth using what else? Science and specifically genetics. So what these um, scientists did, Michael Warbury et al. and and published in Nature, was um, a series of experiments where they were able to find blood serum that had been stored since this period in time, since the kind of... um, 70s period in time around and predating when Gaetan was active on the airplane. The serum samples had been stored as part of a vaccine study to try and elucidate more about hepatitis. So nobody even knew whether or not there were AIDS um, positives within these serum samples, but there were thousands of them. So they went through and they were able to find uh, samples that were not very degraded, because many of them had degraded, who also tested positive for the HIV virus. And they were able to do genetic analyses uh, using these samples. They called it, uh, what did they call it? Genetic jackhammering, I think it is. Yeah. Uh, RNA jackhammering, which is a similar protocol to what they did to try and understand a little bit more about Neanderthal DNA, for example, or I should say RNA. It's just a way to draw a little bit more information out of it. So after they jackhammered this RNA and they validated this approach, they were able to look at these sequences and say, What's going on with the specific virus, the specific HIV that was in these different groups, both in New York and San Francisco at the time? And what they found was that there were already rates of uh, mutation occurring in New York such that it wouldn't have been possible for Gaetan to have been the person who brought it to New York. It seems to have come from Haiti to New York in 1969. Wow. And then from New York to San Francisco 
1978. It really got its kind of hold in New York City, sort of around 1972, 1974, and then moved over to San Francisco. And when they actually looked at, because they did have blood samples from Gaetan as the individual who was so helpful in starting to really trace the epidemiology around this, when they looked at his blood samples, they found that it was already so mutated, the HIV that was within his blood, that it couldn't have matched back to the earlier index cases here in the United States. And just for those who don't know, um, the earliest case of HIV we still think probably happened when SIV simian um, immunodeficiency virus um, spilled over into a human population in Africa in kind of the 40s, 50s, like around there is where we think that it happened. And it looks like it moved over to Haiti, from Haiti to Africa in like the mid 1950s, moving into the 1960s. And then, of course, from Haiti to New York around 1969 to 1974. Yeah. So couldn't have been patient zero because he was a teenager then and was definitely not flying all over the country spreading around HIV. Just as a little aside, the original story I had picked to talk about today, it was an interesting story about CRISPR and Cas9 being used once again to identify specific targets that could in the future develop into therapies against HIV. Because CRISPR and Cas9 is so cheap, it's so easy to use, we're able to do things in a manner of months that we you know, that took years before. And there's new research out just yesterday about new targets that have been identified um, that could be genetically altered to potentially prevent HIV infection, to prevent the HIV from ever being able to enter the cells. It's amazing how fast the CRISPR technology yeah. is moving. I love and that how, shit. Like, and how like grad students in like non- rich, you know, labs, like places where they're, they don't historically have a lot of grant money. It's just so much more democratized now. So we're seeing great research coming out. Yeah, it's literally a game changer. This doesn't happen that often, but it's exciting to watch it. Steve, can you give me a quick brief on, on what's changed like over the past year since? Uh... Well, so the technology is a, a very, you know, quick, cheap, easy way to alter genes. Right, uh, but using, what, but what's gone on over the past year? Like, is, is anything? Well, just it's it's exploded in labs. It's, so many labs are using it now. We're we're moving rapidly towards actual applications, but we're not quite there yet. It takes time. So anything in humans, you're going to have to do the clinical trials, right? Which is going to take yeah. time. But the but, cool thing is they can do this research in human cells. Yes. You know, yeah. they can actually look at cells outside of the organism, of course, but they can do this in vitro research in human cells and identify different targets like they never could before and then alter those targets to try. I mean, almost any disease state that you can think of where there's some sort of cellular change, some sort of viral vector involved, people are tackling it now because of CRISPR-Cas9. It's just amazing. The thing that's really changed is the number of labs around the world that are using it exploded. Just, I don't, I don't know if I can remember a technique that spread this fast through the research yeah. community. Yeah. Well, because it used to take years, yeah. and you had to have so much expertise and so much money, and it was painstaking. A good analogy, Jay, would be: imagine if the Large Hadron Collider. Imagine if every lab had one. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, 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 yeah. 
that's what, that's like, what it's like. I mean, it's like there are big things like, I don't know. May, I, I don't know if it's completely fair to relate it to like when we found out that antibiotics mattered and that like germ <laughs> theory was real. But that was a game changer in medicine, right? We could do things that we never could do before because we just didn't know. And I think in this way, labs can do things they could never do before because it was just crazy expensive yeah. and they didn't have the know-how to do it. Yeah, I mean, some similar biological tools come to mind like when we figured out how to make monoclonal antibodies that was mm-hmm. huge if you know what those are you can make a very specific oh, okay. kind mm-hmm. of antibody hence <laughs> monoclonal so, you know it has one target and anyway so that was or pcr for both, or pcr is the other one PCR i was going to mention huge, too yeah. polymerase right. chain, chain reaction, reaction. Yeah, so in terms of taking a tiny little piece of DNA and expanding it to the point where we could see what it is, you know, and and, and test it. So, yeah, the, this is similar but probably even bigger than perhaps than either of those. But same kind of total research game-changing technology. Awesome. Okay, let's move on. Bob, is the universe expanding or not? What's going on here? Seriously, Holy Bob, crap, up, dude. Man? Holy crap. Yeah, really. I've seen this everywhere. This, I'm, I'm actually <laughs> angry at this point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Jay. This one is annoying. Uh, we'll have to see where it goes. But one of the biggest scientific and Nobel winning discoveries is being called into question. No. New- How dare they? <laughs> Give us that <laughs> Nobel back. But <laughs> new research is suggesting that the uh, the ever-increasing speed of the expansion of the universe may be erroneous, um, an erroneous result of a small sample size and other things. So yes, this would be quite a bummer if proved true. You know, it may seem like just an isolated theory. Oh yeah, the universe is expanding faster and faster, big deal. But it, it has spawned so many theories and conjectures in its wake, and it has really changed cosmology like little in the past has. So we should all know uh, this story by now, but I'm going to go over it again because it's so cool and I like it. So in 98, <laughs> uh, they made an amazing discovery, not just amazing, it, it, in my mind, the big, the biggest science news in many decades that the universe is not only expanding, but it, it, it's expanding at an accelerating rate. It's not slowing down. It's not stopping. It's just going faster and faster and faster. Now, this was discovered uh, by a really cool process. They were looking at special supernovas called Supernova 1As. Now, these are caused by a white dwarf star accreting matter from another star uh, that's in a binary pair with it. The slow accretion eventually gets to the point of around 1.3 solar masses, and that causes them to explode with a with and this is key with a consistent peak luminosity, which happens to be five billion times brighter than the sun. Very very bright. That's bright. And so the thing is, if they are invariably that bright then how dim they are tells us how far away they are, right? That means we can use them as a standard candle and accurately determine distance. So key. Um, so the, the distance to the star tells us the distance to its host galaxy, which then tells us the redshift of the galaxy, which then tells us the expansion history of the universe. That's one way to look at it. But, but using all this information uh, from many supernovas told the researchers that the expansion of the universe was ever increasing, right? Because the more distant ones were dimmer than they should have been. This could be explained if you say that, well, the, the expansion is happening faster and faster. Uh, this idea was so influential, it changed the standard model of cosmology significantly. Uh, it, it was such an amazing idea and backed up uh, seemingly very well that it garnered a, a Nobel Prize uh, in 2011. In 2011, that's actually very fast. Uh, what, 14, 13, 14 yep. years? That's really, that's pretty quick. Case um, closed. Case closed. <laughs> well, but, but, it, but it's not just this theory. Um, it's, it's also led to a plethora of other wicked theories and hypotheses. For example, 
uh, you know, what causes this increasing expansion? Where, where, how has this happened? That led to the idea of dark energy. Dark energy. Dark energy itself. <laughs> I didn't which, have to wait for it. They didn't want to wait. No, they didn't. Which suffuses <laughs> the universe, getting more powerful as the universe gets bigger and bigger. Uh, this was essentially dark energy is essentially Einstein's cosmological constant coming back from the dead. Uh, and dark energy supposedly makes up a whopping 68% of the universe and it's driving the expansion obviously also the idea that we you know we live in an open universe if if this is happening it's a, it's not a closed universe we're not going to have as Douglas Adams would say a ganap gib ganap gib <laughs> the reverse of a big bang because it's not going to collapse in on itself it's just going to keep going it's going to be an open universe which has if you think about that that's got a lot of interesting things Wait, to it as well Wait what did you call that uh, Big Bang Bang Douglas Adams called it a ganap gib the the opposite of a big bang a big collapse Oh isn't that the big the crunch The big crunch yes big crunch. Yeah. Oh, okay. Douglas, Douglas Adams had a better way. Gotcha, yeah. Um, and then, of course, uh, the coup de grace here, the, the the scary possibility of the of a big rip with the Coup extension. de grace. Oh, that's right. Coup de grace. We've coup actually, de grace. Uh, talked about that. Um, <laughs> it's funny. We, we talk about this shit, and then it's like science or fiction. You don't remember which one was science, which one was fiction. It's like, what was that? Um, but don't the ever big give rip, us a spelling or, or pronunciation. The, the big rip. Yeah, the big rip that. is probably the scariest thing ever. Ever, it's the idea that the expansion increases so much and so fast that eventually your subatomic particles would be ripped apart from themselves uh, because of this expansion in the far, far distant future. So that's so that so all of that, you know, all of this fun science, interesting science, scary science. Professor Subir Sarkar of Oxford University et al. Uh, they've reported in Nature Journal Scientific Reports that they, they've looked at a bigger data set of supernova one A's. Um, and 740, in fact, t- 10 times the amount that was originally studied. And they also, another important point is they used more sophisticated and modern statistical analytical techniques, uh, than the, than the earlier group did. Um, and all of this points to a constant rate of expansion, not accelerating, but a constant rate of, of expansion. Interesting. Oh, so it's still expanding, just not at a faster and faster rate. Right. The thing is, you don't need to resort to dark energy at all if it, if it's not expanding like that. Oh yeah. Um, but also, but remember, that doesn't mean that the old Nobel winning theory is blown out of the water. But the confidence level for for that theory uh, has you know is kind of demoted from five sigma, which is the gold standard, down to a three sigma, which is not three. nearly as which is not mm. nearly as impressive. A I five lost two si- sigmas. Oh. Yeah, yeah. A five <laughs> a five sigma is one in three point five million. That's the, that's the point uh, that you could say yes, I have made a discovery and be completely justified. Uh, uh, three sigma is like one in what seven hundred and forty. I mean that's that's not that doesn't inspire a hell of a lot of confidence. Not nearly as much as three point five million. So uh, so that's where we're at. So of course this is going to be vetted more deeply over time. Especially I think people are going to look at the statistical methods that were used, and who knows what they may find. Uh, they may may support. I, I think they might just support them and say, "Yep, these are more robust. They're more sophisticated. These are these are solid statistical methods." But I think we may need to actually wait for a more definitive answer. We have to wait until the uh, European Extremely Large Telescope, um, using its laser comb, uh, it, it will awesome. be able to do that over um, – it, it will measure the expansion over a 10 to 15-year period and get a much – a really uh, high confidence level in terms of uh, what is going on with the, with the expansion of the universe, whether it is uh, increasing or, or is it if it's kind of just – 
expanding at the same rate. So it may take some time. Does this mean that the universe is still going to, you know, wink out at some point or is it change the fate of the universe in any way? Yeah, that's a really good question, Jay. If it's a constant expansion, then you can hold out some hope that there there would be enough of enough gravitational force to eventually slow Start it down uh-huh. and and do get and get that Ganeb gig or, or Gib or crunch. big crunch. Um, so that's possible. If, if it, but it, it might lead. It, they might just say, uh, "Well, yeah, th- we're still going to experience the heat death. It's just going to keep on expanding at this constant rate." And uh, yeah, eventually, there's just going to be, like I said, the heat death. You're not going to be able to do any useful work anywhere ever again in, in after trillions of centuries or whatever. Does that change it to now from a definite open universe to a possibly open or closed universe? That's interesting. I don't know. Or I flat, neither open or closed. I mean, yeah. that's mm. right exactly in between those two. Ooh, almost yeah. like it was designed. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> Just see if you were paying attention. <laughs> so, yeah, what the hell, man? Can you imagine with, if we get to the point where we're like, yep. Forget about dark energy. We don't need it anymore. All right. So all the dark energy hinges on this, Bob? 68% of the universe will have appeared in 98, and then it will go away. It'll be like, nope, that's it. It's just uh, dark matter, which I don't think is going anywhere. And uh, and the universe has everything else that we know. Um, so uh, we would lose a huge chunk of the universe, which is really sad. Yeah, it sucks. It's a lot to lose, you know. But what if it's yeah. more? Cor- but but we, if it's more correct, man. Uh, of course, <laughs> yeah, you know. Of course, Evan. Whatever. I don't care where the hell it goes, as long as it's you know, fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating either way. But it, that's it. You you bow to the evidence. You, you know. So, don't, but don't get is too the invested. evidence? But is the evidence good? I mean, if it's not qualifying at the right um, significance cutoff. I guess no, I'm confused as no, to why. There's, they're saying the old theory, uh, which uh, seemed like five sigma, is actually three is sigma. Is actually only three sigma. Right. Now, I don't and know what their confidence level is. We don't is. know That's what a, their significance Right. Yeah, because there probably needs to be more analysis done. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's preliminary. Oh, yeah, it's preliminary. So. Hopefully okay. they made a fateful mistake. But um, but, but it, it sounds like we're going to have to wait 15 years to resolve this. Well, or at least no, before they're totally Nobel unacceptable. By the way, I'm not. I don't want to. At my age, I need to give me the answers now. Make <laughs> right? them up Come at on. this point. I don't care. Not I just necessarily, want to know. Steve. I mean, it's not like we're waiting for this European uh, extremely large telescope. We don't not. We don't like have to wait for that. We could still make progress, decent progress. You know, before that, before that finishes. Um, you know, they could look at, they could look at these statistical methods and, and, and come up with the opposite conclusion, conclusion. Who knows? Once we have other, you know, other scientific eyes on this. Yeah. You know, it's gotta be replicated. The people have, other so people. So this is now, an, this is an open story now. We gotta keep our eyes on it. Yes. Cool. So Evan, I understand we crashed something into Mars. Oh yeah. You know, it's happened oh before God. and unfortunately it's happened again. Europe's ExoMars lander has crashed. And it was confirmed by an orbiting NASA spacecraft, which spotted the wreckage and took some low-res photos, but we'll get to those in a minute. The lander's name is Schiaparelli, and it stopped communicating with Mission Control about one minute before the planned touchdown on Mars. This was back on Wednesday morning, October 19th. Ouch. Their photos of the landing site were captured by NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, and it confirmed what the ExoMars team members had suspected. Scaparelli died violently impacting the surface at 300 kilometers per hour, also 186 miles per hour. And you should be familiar with those numbers, by the way. 186 and 300 should always be associated in your head because the speed of light is measured as 186,000 miles per second 
and 300,000 kilometers per second. But enough math for now. Uh, I think there are two primary takeaways with this crash. Number one, just because there was a crash, it did not make the mission a failure. Um, it may be just considered somewhat of a partial failure or partial success, how you, however you want to look at it. The, I mean, the whole mission itself survived the launch, the journey, the separation of the lander, the orbiter, everything else worked up right to the last minute before touchdown. Uh, and the orbiter itself had to, had to perform a 139 minute long engine burn in order to achieve its orbit. And that was, you know, there was a lot that could have gone wrong there. That one got ace. That went perfectly. The orbiter's ready to perform science and act as a relay station for the larger ExoMars 2020 mission that's going to be happening. Um, and the lander itself, just because it crashed, it was not also deemed a total failure. Uh, it sent data to the mothership during the descent. And the preliminary analysis was that the lander began the maneuver flawlessly, uh, breaking against the planet's atmosphere and deploying its parachute. Uh, all those functions happened as needed. Uh, number two, I think more importantly, is that because of the failure and figuring out what went, what, what that part of the crash, uh, that part being the failure, figuring out what went wrong in the procedure will give important data to the, to the scientists for, as I referred to before, ExoMars's main goal of achieving a bigger mission in the year 2020. And uh, they'll also use the data, of course, for other future missions to Mars. Now, as far as the failure goes, the latest news is that they think a software glitch caused the crash. The data shows that at 4 minutes 41 seconds into the 6-minute fall, the lander's heat shield and parachute ejected ahead of time. Um, then the thrusters designed to decelerate the craft for 30 seconds until it was just meters off the ground. It engaged for only three seconds and then it was commanded to switch off. So basically the lander thought it was otherwise on the ground and, but that was it. It was traveling, <laughs> traveling at 300 kilometers uh, per hour, smashing into the, with uh, into almost, the planet. with almost all its fuel, which exploded. Ugh. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And left a nice, uh, you know, distinct mark on the planet for the, uh, reconnaissance yeah. orbiter to, uh, to photograph. Now, as far as Black the pictures. Smudge. Yeah. I wasn't impressed by the quality, but it was a low resolution camera. Uh, the orbiter is going to be, uh, going over the site again soon in the coming days and it will be using its high resolution imaging, uh, the high rise camera to, uh, to take better photographs. So we'll see yeah. what, uh, we'll, we'll get more. We'll see a high resolution detail. black smudge. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, but I mean, with the, for the pictures that you have available now, you're seeing it. It's just really, it's just a dot on the surface. It's nothing yeah. dramatic or anything. It's like, a, it could be, you know, a, a speck on the lens if you didn't know any better. Um, the ExoMars teams has plans now to replicate the mistake using a virtual landing system designed to simulate the lander's hardware and software. Uh, as part of efforts to make sure that the ExoMars 2020 mission goes as flawlessly as possible. Unfortunately, when you're landing a lander on a planet like Mars, working 99% of the way isn't enough. That last little bit is, you know, that's critical. It is critical. It's got to work all the way to the ground, you know? Yeah, yep. to have 100% <laughs> mission success. And they do say... EDL is kind of the hardest part, right? Yeah. Entry, descent, and landing is the... That reminds me of, an, of the movie Top Gun, where the uh, teacher says to t Tom Cruise, that was some of the best flying I've ever seen, right up to the point where you got killed. <laughs> that's right take a look uh you can look online for the list of missions to mars and you can see you know there are flybys orbiters rovers landers and all sorts of things 
it gives you a nice little list here. A lot of failures, um, or oh, yeah. you know, or you know, mostly failures. Uh, this is. It comes back also to the larger idea of when we talk about news items having to do with you know tr- people traveling to Mars and colonizing Mars and these sorts of things. You know, the the the, the failure rate is still just way too high, too unacceptable at this point. And any you know, I, I think estimates need to be put on the cautious side and pushed back as far as when we really think we're, we're going to be putting people on safely on the ground of Mars. Yeah. I mean, it, obviously we can do it, but it is still a high risk procedure. I mean, it's, you know, there's nothing routine about landing on another planet. Nope. All right, Jay, who's that noisy? Sure. Well, first I have a um, little message here for Bob. Ooh. Happy <laughs> Halloween, Bob. <laughs> Is that the uh, the face from the Saw movie series? <laughs> oh, I made that for Bob, but now Jigsaw, is that what that <laughs> no, oh, yeah, same definitely thing. Definitely Jay's voice. Thanks, Jay. You're welcome. <laughs> there was some backward masking in there, Bob, in case you were interested. What? Tell me about it. What would you say? You have to figure it out, man. I'm not going to oh, do okay. it. Right at the you. end. Wow. Right? It's, your own, it's your own personal noisy to figure out, Bob. All right. Last week, I played this sound. Crazy, huh? What is that? I can name that tune in 175 notes. <laughs> so. It's some sort of broadcast. Yeah. It reminds me of like in movies when there's a post-apocalyptic scene and they go to a town where there's nobody around, but there's like wreckage and one of the radios from a car is still playing. It's creepy. Yeah. No, you're right. It has that. It's a little creepy or like a, or a yeah. ghost story, you know, where like there's a yeah. turntable that's barely working or something. Well, that was something. Re- this is really interesting and kooky. Um, apparently, Britain's new plastic money can be used as a record player needle. What? <laughs> Somebody <laughs> figured out that you can. <laughs> yes, <I didn't>... <laughs> it's someone. This is somebody playing the a seven-inch vinyl record, and it's uh, it's a single called "It's a Rich Man's World" by ABBA. Um, Wait, and they used a single to play uh, or the uh, song is a single? <laughs> no, it was a $5 banknote. I don't think they have singles, do they? I don't, they don't think have so. pounds Five euro. dollars. So they They're literally just like just put the corner of the bill down on it and it, the note itself vibrates and plays the music. And wow. did they atta- did they affix it to an arm or were they just holding it by hand and that's why it was kind of skipping around like that? Yeah, that's why I left that in there because it gives yeah. you like that record player noise, you know what I mean? Like it's awesome. It, so I just thought that was awesome, brilliant actually is the right word in this term. Hmm. So uh yes, yeah, so thank you uh Christopher from Norway who uh, sent that in. I thought that was really cool. And and you know what's awesome? Every week I, I have a little game with myself where I'm like, how many people are going to guess this? I'm trying to see if, I can, if I'm developing a sense. I am not developing a sense for how many people nope. know what noises. Uh, <laughs> it's random. A lot of people figured out this one. And, and it's funny. No. Now, I have a little story. Yes, well, a lot of people, I guess, saw it that live in, um, in, in Europe. Oh, because it um, like got airplay somewhere. Yeah, I think that's probably what happened. But I also happen to know that ABBA is huge in Sweden, yeah. and a lot of Swedish people heard this one as well, probably because oh, of the yeah. a- the ABBA connection that they they saw the video 
Um, but that was fun. That was this. That was a really cool one. They're big in Australia too, just for the record. They're kind of big here. So yeah, I, I think they're still big they were. in uh, in Sweden though. Yeah. So um, I have two noises for you this week. One of them is uh, seasonal. I'll play that for you first. Now my question for you is: first, name the movie this came from, and mm-hmm. second, for more points, for more SGU points, specifically tell me what was going on in the scene. Okay, there you go. That's pretty Happy easy. Halloween on that one. I, I well, for some easy? people it is. Yeah, Happy for Halloween. some people it's easy. And then this is this week's noisy. Check it out. Wow, that's a hard one. Oh god, that was it. Whoa. That was it. Sounds like something hitting a wire. <laughs> I know, yeah, it it's definitely weird. sounds like a stringed, like an electronic but stringed instrument. This one was sent in by a listener from Norway. And I'm I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't know how to way. pronounce your name. Oivind, <laughs> Oivind, O Y V I N D, and the O has a slash through it. Oivind. Uh, does that make the O silent? I swear to God, if this guy emails me and he's like, "No, it's actually pronounced Charles," I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> okay, so but not thank surprised. You. Thank you, Charles, for sending that one in. If you have any <laughs> guesses, if you have any awesome noises, if you have any cool monster sounds. To stay in the theme of Halloween, email me at WTN at theskepticsguide.org. So we're going to do a Name Not Logical Fallacy, a popular segment that we don't do often enough. I'll try to work that in more frequently. Got a lot of requests for this one. This one comes from Hayden in Australia. And Hayden writes, Hi, today I was having an argument with a friend. I'll keep it brief, but the basic gist is that he was using being a rule implies that it is fair slash just. In a certain context, I brought this logic to an extreme example, something about capital punishment, but he refused to back down and said that it was not fair to use his logic in that example because they weren't equal. I thought that I was using reductio ad absurdum, if I am not mistaken. I'm not really sure exactly what I'm asking, but I wanted to know if there was a name for that for what he was doing, i.e. believing that he could choose which contexts to apply his logic. Hopefully, I wasn't doing anything wrong myself. If I was, I'd love for you to point it out because I usually use that type of argument a lot. Okay. What, so what do you think? So essentially he's saying that his friend said, hey, if something is a rule, then by definition, it's fair. And Hayden was like, well, how about this rule, which is obviously not fair? <laughs> and his friend said, oh, you, that's, you can't do that. That's not, you can't make that argument because that's not the same thing. How is that not the same thing? Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, obviously we're getting Hayden's version of the conversation, but we'll take it at face value. Yeah, that is a reductio ad absurdum, which is fine. That's a perfectly valid form of argument, which essentially is you take a bit of logic, a principle, and you say, okay, let's test it by seeing how far it goes. And then you think of examples in which 
you know, it, it be, you reduce it until it gets absurd, right? That's the reductive ad absurdum. You keep applying it to more and more extreme situations, uh, which is fine. That's a perfectly le- logically legitimate way to establish wh- whether or not a principle is valid in and of itself or if it has limits, if it's not something that you could take absolutely. If you have to make an exception, then you can't argue that the principle is absolute. It's like saying it's always wrong to murder somebody. Okay, well, what if you're defending your life? Well, except then. Okay, well, then it's no longer always wrong to murder somebody. Mm. You would now have to add caveats to it. So that's a similar line of argument. But of course, the reductio ad absurdum can be abused by if you're changing the context enough that it is no longer analogous to the original argument then that's an abuse of the reductio ad absurdum. Um, and people do that a lot as well. So remember, these are informal logical fallacies. There's no equation that I can give you for when it is correct or not correct. They're all context dependent. You have to really just analyze each argument and say, okay, does the logic hold true all the way through? Am I uh, applying things consistently? Uh, is, does this analogy work? Is it a valid analogy or not? So the Hayden's friend was essentially the logical fallacy, the informal logical fallacy that he may have been committing was inconsistency, where you say this logic is valid when I want it to be, but not when I don't want it to be, and without any reason except I'm saying it's valid over here, but you can't call me on it if it doesn't hold up as a general rule. So that that would be the, the fallacy of inconsistency, just making up the rules as you go along, is, basically. Is there also like, I think I remember there being like some sort of like a black and white fallacy. I can't remember what it's called. Where basically, the false dichotomy? Yes, the false dichotomy that like, you know, it's either always true or never true, that it can't like just sometimes be true, you know, that there's nothing in the middle. I don't know if it really fits for that. But this idea, this kind of pre-existing notion that when it comes to legality, like it's illegal because it's wrong or it's wrong because it's illegal. And like maybe there's some times when that's not quite the case. Yeah. So you're getting to ethical philosophy, Mm -hmm. right? So uh, that is a deontological ethical philosophy where you you start with absolute principles, and those ethical principles are always true, mm-hmm. no exceptions, which, of course, is easy to break down, right? Yeah. You, can say, you should always tell the truth. Really, if you're hiding a Jew in your basement and a yeah. Nazi comes to your door, you have to tell them, yes, I'm hiding, I'm hiding Jews in my basement. No, that's, that's the classic example of when lying is okay. That's a great example, actually. Well, yeah, context is <laughs> like, kind oh, okay. of everything. Yeah, exactly. You take it to an extreme to illustrate the point because no one would disagree with that, right? I mean, it's just so extreme. So when two ethical principles bump up against each other, then the the deontological approach breaks down. Now you need a way of resolving which one has priority. And it's, there is, again, no absolute rules you could apply. You have to think about it. You know, it's going to make individual decisions in individual cases. Um, then, of course, there's the um, utilitarian approach, which is just whatever the outcome is. You know, two people die over here and 10 people die over there, then the two people dying is the ethical approach, period, because that's the better outcome. Yeah. Which is, and, and doesn't at all consider the mechanism or the actions or the intentions or anything else. So, can I kill somebody, harvest their organs and save five people's lives? 
um, saving five people and sacrificing one. It's like, well, no. I mean, I don't, I don't think people, anyone would agree to be killed and have their organs harvested to save five other people because the math works out. So again, taking an extreme example to say, just to illustrate that there's difficulty with that approach. But you can take sort of a middle-of-the-road approach where you consider all of these things. You consider the outcome. You consider the intentions. You consider the effect on the moral landscape. Uh, you consider ethical principles and how they are being applied. And it's messy, but that's, I think, the only valid way to sort of reason your way through it. If you try to break it down to some kind of simplistic rules, it's always going to fail. You're always going to be able to break those rules. So, And, th- and logic works the same way. You can't come up with any simplistic rules. Like, what's the line between a valid use of reducto ad absurdum and an abuse of that? Well, you got to give me the context. You got to tell me what these specific arguments are. I can't give you an algorithm. It's like, when is a reference to authority appropriate and when is it an argument from authority? Yeah. Right? We have that conversation a lot too. If I'm saying, well, there's a very solid scientific consensus built upon decades of research that X is true. That's not a logical fallacy, you know, as opposed to saying, well, Dr. Oz said this, it must be true. <laughs> you know, that is a, that is a logical fallacy. And of course, there's a lot of real estate in between those two extremes. And there's usually no sharp demarcation lines, as we say. Philosophers call that the demarcation problem. There's usually fuzzy gradations in between clear-cut extreme examples. And again, it's judgment, it's context. You got to think. There's just no shortcut to that. And in this case, would his friend's argument not also fall under appeal to authority? Like specifically saying that because something is legal, it is therefore right or valid or moral? Yeah, Yeah, I agree. That is authority, right? The law. Yeah, the fact that it is a rule implies that it is fair is kind of an argument from from authority. It's the assumption that well, it wouldn't be a rule if it if it weren't fair, which is you know, all it takes is one good solid counterexample, and you could say no, there there are rules that are not fair. I thought you were going to say all or, it takes is one just, good solid lobby. No, there are laws. <laughs> there, are, there, are, there are Supreme Court decisions that are unfair. totally you know that are off. Yeah. We have to overturn things constantly. Crazy. Yeah, all you could say is that if it's the law, by definition, it's the law. But well, that's yeah. different. It doesn't mean that it is, yeah, that it is a, a somehow ethically, morally, right. objectively just. You know, yeah, um, that's authoritarian, I guess. There's, I'm sure there's a more specific term for that, where what is right is whatever the law is. I mean, that's that's a silly, I think, it's philosophical a very basis for ethics. Weirdly Mormon approach. I remember learning yeah. about that Scary. growing up. I remember my parents telling me that there was some movie that did really well where it was about a Nazi soldier and an American soldier on either side of the line in World War II, but they found mutual respect because they were both Mormon and and part of like the Mormon kind of culture is that you always respect the law and you always expect whatever government is established where you live, like regardless of how you just never question it. It's the weirdest thing ever. And so, yeah, this, there's this idea. And I think, I don't know if there are other religions that are like that too, where it's kind of almost godlike, the idea of whatever the kind of ruling governmental structure is. Yeah. I mean, religions tend to be authoritarian. Yeah. And it's, it, it is interesting that they would extend that to the state. Right. 
Usually they would try to set themselves up above the state, you know. I think that um, it was kind of their way to get out from under the whole polygamy thing was that like yeah, okay. once it was actually deemed against the law, then all of the non-fundamentalist Mormons, like what we consider the LDS today, went like, it's illegal, then we're banning the practice. We are law-abiding citizens. And that became yeah. like central to their self-definition. Whereas the FLDS, the kind of culty side of it, were like – just because you say it's illegal doesn't mean I'm going to stop doing what my religion says to do. So I think that that yeah. actually became a that's interesting, yeah, like a self identifier for them. Super it, weird. It was a survival rationalization. <laughs> yeah, they had to they had to think that in order to reconcile their belief with not all getting tossed in prison. <laughs> totally uh, cool. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. Uh, Can hmm. any of you guess the theme? Halloween. Halloween. Thanksgiving. Correct. It is Halloween. Ah. <laughs> Thanksgiving. <laughs> All Saints Day. And there are four items. Are you ready? Yes. Yeah, right. so test your knowledge of Rebecca would be groaning. Halloween. <laughs> Here we is. go. Item number one. The modern tradition of trick or treat evolved out of older traditions of singing and dancing or even praying for the dead in exchange for treats. Item number two. It is illegal in several states of the United States for shelters to sell all black cats around Halloween for fear they will be sacrificed in rituals. Item right, number three, the LD50 of sucrose is 29.7 grams per kilogram, which translates into 1,627 pieces of candy corn for an 82 kilogram or 180 pound adult. <laughs> the LD50 is the num the amount of something that will kill half of test animals. Who calculated so, that? <laughs> yeah. And item number four, Halloween originated at the Celtic Festival of Sowen, even though it's pronounced S-A-M-H-A-I-N, it's pronounced Sowen, which celebrated the end of the year and the beginning of the long winter. Oh, crap. Kara, I just have to make you go first because of that. Because <laughs> you had an utterance. <laughs> okay. Oh, and there's four, so my odds are even worse That's the this teacher week. in Steve. How do you figure? I know. Um, how do I figure? <laughs> Let's see. 25% chance of getting it right. Assuming luck. you know nothing, yes, that's correct. Assuming I know, and I know nothing. I know very little. I knew what an LD fifty was. I wish you hadn't defined that. It's one thing I knew. Um, let's see. Modern <laughs> tradition of trick or treat. Older traditions of singing and dancing, or even praying for the dead in exchange for treats, could be something there. Dia de los Muertos. Halloween is like a celebration of the dead. Tricking or treating, I don't, but the trick part isn't in there at all. So I don't know. Um, although when people say trick or treat, can you imagine going up to somebody's door and being like trick or treat, and then they're like drop a bucket of water on their head, and they're like trick, bitches. That would be <laughs> yeah, horrible, rarely, right? Rarely um, yeah, trick. rarely you get a trick. Okay, it is illegal in several states for the U.S. of the U.S. for shelters. To, see, this could be true because there's so many stupid laws still on the books. It doesn't mean that it's actually enacted. If it were enacted, that would be super annoying. But I could see this being on the books. I mean, we had the Salem witch trials, for Christ's sake. 
LD50 of sucrose is 29.7 grams per kilogram. So it's 1,627 pieces of candy corn. That could be like a whole order of magnitude off. I have no idea. How many thousand? That's a lot. But candy corn's tiny. I don't know. Halloween originated as the Celtic festival of Sowen, which celebrated the end of the year and the beginning of the long winter. Could be that too. Could have been Celtic. I have no idea. I didn't think it was. I always associate it with like South America, but or Central America. <laughs> I'm gonna. I don't know. This is really a shot in the dark. I'm gonna go with the Celtic. Well, that's so random though. The end of the year and the beginning of the long winter. But maybe that's like Thanksgiving. No, we know how Thanksgiving <laughs> originated. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm going to still, I'm going to say that number four is the fiction because I know that Halloween is celebrated throughout the world, but I do still think of it as a more traditionally American holiday. Um, I know that there's certain places in the world where they celebrate it, but it's usually a little different or some places don't really celebrate it. So I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to say that it was not the Celtic festival of Sowin, that that's something else. Okay, Evan. Uh, trick or treat evolved out of older traditions, singing and dancing, praying for the dead. Sure, I have no problem with that. I don't know what the real answer is, but I don't see anything particularly wrong with that. A lot of things evolved out of older traditions of singing and dancing because there was nothing else to do. Number two, it's illegal in several states for the U.S. to shelter in the U.S. for shelters to sell all black cats around Halloween. Okay, yeah, crazy laws on the books. I agree with Kara. I don't think that. I don't think there's any problem. With that one being science. Number th- uh, the next one, the <laughs> LD50 of sucrose. What? Come on. I mean, fine. How, uh, what? How am I really <laughs> supposed to know if this is right or wrong? It, duh. Imp- I, you either know it or you don't. That's the way it goes. And I don't know it. So I think it's going to be science. A lot of techno speak in there, which means it leaves the Celtic Festival, number four. Celebrating the end of the year and the beginning of the long winter. I also think that one is fiction. Uh... I'm not really familiar with the end of the year being at the end of the harvest, I suppose. Is that when it, their calendar lines up and they start their new year then? I don't know. It, you know, I, I know cultures and religions have their own calendars and stuff, but I'd not heard of that before. So I'll say that one's fiction as well. Okay, Jay, does your Thanksgiving food translate to Halloween? Singing, dancing, praying for the dead, yes, this is science slash history. I I think this one is true. Absolutely. Singing and dancing and praying for the dead. That's I do we do that today, Bob. That's what Bob and I do every year, so it's still there. Every um, yeah, but they kept their clothes on. Yeah, okay. Well you got me there. So. This one about it's illegal in several states to sell black cats. We you know, I there's something there about that, something a little tickler in the back. I'm feeling about that. <laughs> The hairs um, in the back of your. I hate this because I consume, I consume so much internet that um. Yep, I read. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you consume so many black cats. <laughs> yeah, so many black cats. Well, I thought yes. you were going over to the candy candy corn. corn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I read in one sitting, about, Jay. One sitting, one thousand six hundred and twenty-seven pieces. I think it's funny to think that there's laws that say you can't sell a black cat, but then, you know, I could see how they would do it. So sure. Okay. I'll just say yes on that one. And then this one about the lethal dose of sucrose is 29.7 grams, which translates to 1,627 pieces of candy corn. 29.7 grams. I wish I could visualize that. You can. 
It's you can. He did the candy corn thing. You could totally the candy corn. That's your vision. <laughs> he put it into real context. Wish I knew how much candy that was. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know how much. Would you say that candy corn is almost a hundred percent sugar? It's Cor- pretty, corn syrup and. I think it is. Yeah. All right. It's so probably sugar and preservatives. What would that be, sugar. Bob? Like five, six, seven bags of candy corn? No, more than that, dude. Sixteen hundred. Yeah. Okay. All right. 100. All right. I don't yeah, know. I could see that that choking you out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> choking you out. <laughs> so, all right. His last one. About the Samhain, Samhain. So when uh, Halloween originated Samhain. as the Celtic festival, that, that one is Celtic. true. Celtic, whatever, Evan. I'm, I'm doing science over you know, here, the man. The Boston Celtics, <laughs> come on, get with it. All right. Okay, I'm going to say that the Black Cats one is the fiction. Okay, Bob. I don't think they had a Wait, wait. Let me just Bob. put the, the finalizer on it. I don't think they passed a law that said you cannot sell any Black Cats out of this you know, place for 30 No. Okay, thank you. All right, Bob, you are our resident Halloween expert, so you go last. Oof. Bring it home, yes. Bob. I think that was a good choice. Uh, let me start with four Celtic sewing. Yes. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's crap. That's what, that's what it is. No <laughs> question. Ever. Um, LD50, who the f knows? Uh, that, that's 1,627 pieces. That doesn't sound like enough. That would kill 50% of 180 pound people. And it doesn't necessarily jive with 29.7 grams, but I don't know about that one. Um, the, uh, the black hats. Yeah. Like, like Kara said, I would not be surprised. It's only several states. We got old laws all over the place. I could see, you know, in some, in, in the 50s, 60s, 70s or whatever, some, some states got a little wacky and said, no, don't sell. Let's not sell them. I could see that. Um, it could be fake, but it makes sense. The one that really rubbed me the wrong way and goes against directly what I, what I have heard and read, uh, not recently though, was this number one, trick or treat. My understanding of the evolution of American trick or treating where you go and ask for candy is that Halloween used to be dominated by Devil's Night, the, the night before where Hoodlums just basically did all tricks. That's it. There was no candy. They just kind of went crazy, did damage, and did crazy stuff. And the powers that be tried to morph Halloween into something a little bit more benign. And they came up with the idea of trick or treating, which is what how it's how it's done today. So I don't remember anything about these these traditions of dancing and praying for the dead in exchange for treats. I would be I would be surprised. I'm not saying I know 100, percent but but I distinctly remember in my fallible memory reading how that happened, as I stated. So I'm going to go with that one as fiction. Okay, so you guys are all over the place, but you all agree on the third one. So we'll start there. <laughs> oh crap! The LD50 please. of sucrose is 29.7 grams per kilogram, which translates to 1,627 pieces of candy corn. For an 82-kilogram or 180-pound adult, you all think that if you eat that much candy corn in one sitting, half of you will croak. <laughs> and that one is science. Yay. Wow, <laughs> Yay. So studies were like, conducted. And- is it excitotoxicity? Like, how do they die? Well, th- I don't know. But they. And this is based <laughs> upon rat studies. Like all, you know, it's all they, about uh, dose. 
You, yeah, yeah, it's all about dose. You can't do you can't do LD fifty studies on people because that. Would be <laughs> so <laughs> half of the one oh, half of the rats that were fed that much you know sucrose died <laughs> of uh, just overload, just sucrose toxicity, just overwhelms so the body's sad. ability to handle all of that. All of that. Well, shit. I guess it's the same as like a diabetic, you know, person who can't maintain their insulin. Yeah, they could die if they eat too much too much sugar without. I I ate more insulin. sugar and candy than that last night. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> It'd be interesting to see if they primed the rats and fed them sugary diets all the time and then fed them all that candy corn, or if these were like healthy rats that never had sugar before this. I think that would spoil the experiment if they did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's assume know. they know Maybe what they're they doing. Maybe they could get them to eat more before they died. Or a ratio. A horrible experiment, with, by the way. Yeah, right. Force feeding candy corn to and so if that translated down to a rat, obviously it's not 1,627 pieces. It's a much well, smaller number. But still, how no, do you it, feed them It wasn't sugar? candy. It was, it was oh, sugar. Right. They sugar. were just they feeding them sucrose. It. That just translates into that's how much candy corn you would need to eat to get that dose of sucrose. And if you weighed 180 pounds or 82 kilograms, yeah. I love that somebody came to figure that out. Okay. Oh, Let's and uh, by the way, uh, yeah, approximately 360 candies in a 22-ounce bag of candy corn. So there you go, Jay. Three hundred sixty so really like in a twenty-two ounce, five and a half bags. Oh, that's so disgusting! Candy yeah. corn is the worst. Imagine doing oh, that. Be hard oh, it's to do. Good. It's decent. Oh, yeah, it's not one decent. or two pieces like wax. are fine. Like one no. or two. I I can't even eat yeah. a handful of those things. They are they, they overwhelm me very quickly. All right. Anyway. Oh, they sell. Oh, this this company sells a forty-ounce bag. Cool. Double your pleasure. <laughs> that's seven hundred. <laughs> that's almost seven hundred twenty pieces in one bag. It's funny to think you're, you're halfway down. to your you're halfway to your halfway death. <laughs> you're at the you're at that store and you're walking down the candy aisle and you could in a in a matter of a second walk past enough candy that could kill you. Oh yeah. Oh right. gosh. It's almost true. There with are any many product, ways probably to kill you store. walking yeah. through a store. You do the same thing in the water aisle. It would take a lot more to water to kill you. Yeah. Sure, uh, but every, everything <laughs> in the grocery store has an LD50 somewhere. Okay. And we're, we're not even at the, the cleaners and even you know, the flexi straws. Bleach. Let's go to number four. Oh, oh wow. You want to knock two of us out with one. Go ahead. Halloween Fine, originated as the Celtic Festival of Sowen. Mm-hmm. Which celebrated the end of the year and the beginning of the long winter. No, it didn't. Bob is very, very confident that this one is signed. Yeah. <laughs> as is Jay's only medium confident. I'm confident. He's more than medium. Evan now Kara, I'm confident. You think this one is the fiction, and this one is. Bob is correct. This is science. Yeah, yes. So when that's the beginning of it, two thousand years ago. So yes, at the end Holy of crap. the summer and the harvest. They, that's when their calendar ended the year, and then the beginning of winter was the beginning of the year. So, Sowen was a celebration of the end of the year, um, and also sort of a preparation for the long winter to come, which was, you know, brutal 2,000 years ago. That was LD 50s all over the place. Man. Yeah. <laughs> so, it was for them conceptually the transition from the harvest to the winter was very much about life and death. And so they thought that this this day was actually the transition between life and death and that there was something special about it. In fact, they thought that on this day, the the boundary, the veil between the living and the dead was uh, breaks down. It was oh, fuzzy. God. In, in Bob's dreams. Yeah, and <laughs> that you could, for example, you know, speak to the dead or 
whatever that they, the dead would walk, walk around. And so that leads to the idea of wearing scary costumes, dressing up as ghosts and demons, because there, if there are ghosts all over the place, you want to pass as one of them so they won't bother you. See how that all fits together? So wearing like scary yeah, costumes. Yeah. I don't like that I'm wrong, but I like it. Uh, so yeah, so Halloween basically originated in what is now Ireland, England, and Northern France. You know, basically where they, yeah, where the Celts were. Okay. I kind of knew that. I just didn't think it was the calendar. So that's mm-hmm. what threw me. Uh, let's go to number one. The modern tradition of trick or treat evolved out of older traditions of singing and dancing, or even praying for the dead in exchange for treats. Bob, you think this one is the fiction? Jay, you think this one is science? Who is right? Who is going to win the Halloween-themed science or fiction for this week? I'm about I'm about four sigma on this one. Four sigma. All right, this one is science. Sorry, Bob. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm, four sigma. Jesus Christ! Yeah, you got to lower that lower that That's sigma crazy. a little bit, Bob. Yeah. Your sigma three. just became where, an omega, Bob. Where the <laughs> hell did I read that? Crap? So, Bob, it's not that you're wrong. But oh that, well, yeah, he's very yes, wait, 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 I, I missed that. Say it again. Say it's it again. Not Steve. that it's not that you are con- what you're wrong. It's that there were multiple steps in the evolution of trick or treat. Oh, so shit. Uh, so this is what happened. So you have the 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 Celtic festival of Sowin, and then you know when the Christians took over, they just transformed all of the pagan holidays into Christian holidays. So Sowin became All Saints Day. Right, the first day, November first, became All Saints Day, and then the night before that was All Hallows Eve. Right, so that's where Halloween comes from. Was when the Christians converted Sowin to All Saints Day, basically. So, as part of that, uh, it, there were um, the tradition was that poor people would sing and dance and tell jokes and basically entertain the rich people in exchange for food, or sometimes even money or other treats. You know. And then the, uh, that got transformed even further into uh, a less of a, of an elitist and more of a religious version where you would pray for the dead and in exchange for your treats, right? So that was the service that the poor were providing, that they would, they'd pray for your lost loved one. Um, and then they were called, so the, if you were singing and dancing for your treats, then that was called guising, as in disguising, because you would get dressed up and then you would dance, you do a little dance, right, Jay? Jay, mm. I think you have to go trick or treating this year and dance for your treats. I don't, I'm happy <laughs> to do it. Or, if you were praying, that was called souling. You know, you would be out souling for treats. Okay. When immigrants with those traditions, migrated to the United States in the early 20th century. They brought those traditions with them. So that was the seed that created trick or treat. But you're right, Bob, in that in the in the uh, 1920s, 1930s, it had more of a dark kind of tradition to it. And there was a huge emphasis on the trick part of it. And then in the 1950s, there was a very deliberate attempt to make this a family-friendly and kid-focused holiday. Yes, that's, what, that's exactly what I was yeah. talking about. But uh, but the so all, but, yeah, but it, the roots were in the immigrants who had these traditions, bringing that to the United States, and then it evolved into what we know now as trick or treat. And it was also, you know, it was a uh, sometimes it was adults going around doing the singing and dancing. 
Um, and then sometimes like then the kids would go in after them and, and, and extort the, you know, money or treats out of the, uh, out of the people who, but the, but the older, uh, fathers or the older adults were the ones who doing the, uh, the entertaining. But in any case, yeah, so that's, that's funny that. how it's, it's come full circle because now, now, um, when we were growing up, it was, it was a kid holiday. It was all about the kids. Now, in the past 15, 10, 15 years, adults have completely taken over Halloween. It's, the kids are just a, like a, a kind of like a epiphenomenon. There's just a little, a little <laughs> part of it. This, it. It's an adult holiday for all intents and Well, purposes. it's both now. It's both. But uh, yeah, but yeah. So adults now celebrate, I think, Halloween in their own way, but trick or treating is still about the kids. Right, yeah, the trick or treating part. I'm talking about Halloween itself. Yeah, Halloween. Yeah, yeah. yeah not tri- yeah, not trick or treating. That's that's still about the kids. But Halloween itself has kind of been taken over by adults, and I think that's awesome. Okay, so all of this means that it is illegal in several states of the U.S. for shelters to sell all black cats around Halloween for fear they will be sacrificed in rituals. Is the fiction? Good job, Jay. But this is based upon reality in a way. Uh, it's not illegal. It's never been illegal to do this, but some animal shelters voluntarily will not sell, uh, or distribute uh, black, all black, and sometimes also all white cats for, for October or for the few days around the Halloween, whatever they decide for themselves because of this fear that they would be, that people are going to torture them or use them in weird rituals or whatever. Aww. But, there's really no evidence that this happens and this tradition in some shelters is, is going away. And in fact, shelters are now using Halloween as a way to like have a, have a sale, you know, give away black cats, like, hey, adopt a black cat for Halloween. So they're going in the opposite direction and the, the holdouts are giving way. You know, it was kind of a, a always a kind of a superstitious kind of urban legend. You know, uh, practice, but it was never against the law anywhere. It was just, at least as far as I could find. If hey, if somebody could find some obscure law in Oklahoma or something, go right ahead, send it to us. But my uh, internet searching, I could not find anywhere that there was actually a law on the books anywhere that made it illegal. It was just a voluntary thing that's actually going away. So good job, Jay. Uh, that was a, that was a tough one. I had to, you know, there's some. You know, obscure knowledge about Halloween. The sewing one was the easiest one because that's sort of like the yeah, yeah the sure. origin of Halloween. I mean, but. yay. I had, I think I was pretty confident with two of them. So, yeah. I like that the easy one was the hardest one. Yeah, for me, yeah, yeah. Think. Well, that's why, yeah, it's one of the <laughs> I thought it was the trick. It was the curveball. Rookie, rookie yeah. mistake here. It's okay. <laughs> Good. Good. Thanks. All right. <laughs> that was fun. There's lots of wacky stuff about Halloween. That was fun to research. All right. Evan, do you have a quote for us? Yeah, Steve, this week's quote was sent in by our listener, William, from Fargo, North Dakota. Fargo. You betcha. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Guaranteed now. You betcha. (laughs) Kara, you got to do your Fargo accent. You do it great. Oh, happy Halloween. You betcha. Oh, up here in Fargo, it's really cold already at Halloween. It's not too bad. You're darn tootin'. Darn tootin'. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. Uh, Thank you, William, for listening, of course. And here's the quote. People are more often willing to believe lies than the truth. Lies can be made to sound pleasant. The truth, by its very nature, isn't always so attractive. And that's a line from the book The Third Kingdom, written by Terry Goodkind. Um, and the character's name is Richard Rawl. Now, it's from a series called The Sword of Truth, 17 epic fantasy novels. 
and I have yet to read them. I'm familiar with Terry Goodkind, certainly the name, but I have not read any of these books, certainly uh, not this series. But good quote he pulled out of there from the 15th yeah. of 17 books, The Third Kingdom. So thank you, William. We appreciate you sending that along. Uh, yeah, that's that's a, a good sentiment. I totally agree with it. That's um, even Sagan. That's very Sagan-esque. Who's you know Sagan said he would rather believe you know harsh reality than a comforting lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of skepticism in a nutshell. It's like whatever reality actually is, that's what we're going to believe. That's not, right. Not follow our our emotions or our culture or our desires. Right, Bob. With the non-accelerating universe, you're cool with that if that's what oh, it turns yeah. out to be. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. No problem. Sure. Darn tootin'. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. And hey, guys, happy Halloween. Thanks, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Kara's like, what show did I join? What the fuck? (laughs) And until next week, if we all survive, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.